I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. Uh, This is our first official recording of July. We are recording this on July 12th. Welcome back, Miss Brittany. Thank you so much. We're already halfway through the month. And you missed it all. I I missed everything. That's how you play it right there. I know. I love it. Would you like to share any uh, stories from the road with our listeners? Well, you know, I did listen back to our last episode because I knew there were going to be some follow-ups. So I did want to report that my mom did not freeze. Great. Yes. Uh, She did use the electric blanket once or twice. Awesome. (laughs) So glad we brought that along. Um, But overall, we had extremely warm weather. It was very hot like 99 degrees in the mountains hot Mm -hmm. which is insane um and i would also like to report that we saw fireworks fantastic did they live up to all of your americana expectations they did they did in fact almost too much um where we were watching them uh i didn't realize where they were going off And it was, like, right above us. And then because of the wind, um, the ash was raining down on us and some of the casings of it. Um, So, yes, we were were in it. (laughs) In the fireworks. (laughs) We were in the – we were part of the fireworks. Awesome. Um, But we had the most magical Americana day, Americana-filled day. We got up at 5.30 in the morning to go see a hot balloon launch at 6 a.m. And then we went to a parade, Mm -hmm. 4th of July Mm -hmm. parade in one town. And then we came back in time for a 4th of July festival that they had, complete with... um, like jumpy houses and all sorts of really fun things. Um, They had some live music, the mayor talking from this little tiny stage with like 10 of us listening. It was so cute, small town. Um, And then we ended with the fireworks. That's a perfect fourth right there. I mean, like what else could you ask for? And, you know, I was so impressed. I sent you a picture because they had lawn signs all over um, where the festival was thanking the local nonprofits for helping through COVID. And I thought that was so sweet. I thought that was a really nice gesture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was impressed. Mm -hmm. We'll make sure to throw one up on our socials for those who follow us. So what about you? Because last we talked, they had changed Mm -hmm. they had privatized the fireworks in our town did you ever find out where they were or where you could view them well yeah so um correction to our last episode which i also listened back to um in that i had said the city designated three parking lots it was four oh and my house is essentially right between two of them so we walked to the nearby high school you know quarter mile away um over to their track and we were definitely not the only people who had realized that that was kind of like in between two of the 
designated spots and had big open spaces, obviously, because it's a track. Um, And the moral of the story is um, my neighbors were very worried about not seeing the fireworks. So everybody bought illegal ones and shot them off all night long. Like even just walking to the track was so stressful because they were going around everywhere. So we're sitting there and we've got two little kids with us. And halfway through the actual show, the nine-year-old turns to us and says, so when does it start? <laughs> like, oh, girly, we've been watching it for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> but she didn't even know because it, it was literally like this 360 fireworks constantly going around us. Oh, how funny. Yeah. So, yes. Did they, have a, did they have a grand finale? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she was tuned in to the proper fireworks at that point. So that was good. Okay. So she didn't miss no. that. Um, but also, so we had a nine-year-old and a five-year-old with us. And uh, the meltdown was so intense. Mm-hmm. But not just the kids, Welcome. the adults as well, where we were just like, mm-hmm. we're done. It's 10 o'clock at night. We're, we're done. And so yeah. the entire walk back to my house was just silent. <laughs> <laughs> And they all immediately just got in their cars and left. And I was like, yep, good night. (laughs) Yeah, good luck. They're all hoping their kids fall asleep on the way home. And they did. They did. Oh, good. (laughs) Oh, how fun. That's great. Um, What about this last weekend? What else did you do while I was gone? Well, um, Saturday I went on a really fun hike with a friend. Um, we're, We're going like halfway through and she turns to me and says, Nia, I think we're lost. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? We're, we're right on the trail where we should be. And she goes, you have absolutely no sense of direction. And I say, well, where did that come from? Yeah, first of all, Ba-dum-ching. let's address that. That was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I was sliding in Monday's jokes with Nia right there. Oh my goodness! I'm so I didn't pick up what you were putting down. That was good. The slick. Thank you. Thank you. I actually practiced that in advance. <laughs> oh my gosh! Such a dork. Yeah. That's why we love you. Yep. <laughs> um. Well, I want to do a quick PSA for this great state that we live in because I just saw a lot of it, or maybe like a quarter of it. <laughs> And it blew my mind. Blew my mind. I've known that Colorado was beautiful. I've been to a lot of places here. But after 13 years of living here and seeing parts of it that I had not seen before, I'm just even more convinced. And while I do not want anybody who's listening to move here, (laughs) because we already have overcrowding along the front range and it would it's a great place to visit so (laughs) definitely come check it out on your next vacation and then you can go back home. go back home very nice uh (laughs) lovely conversation for two transplants to be having as well i know i know i know well i just laugh so hard there's this i don't think i brought it up but there's this video going around on facebook and um all the other socials of this guy who's lived in Colorado for two weeks (laughs) and it's just states all of these like very Colorado things um and he's like getting a tattoo of the mountains with the Colorado flag (laughs) and the and the tattoo artist is like how long you lived here and he's like two weeks (laughs) um 
And it's just absolutely like now my girls are quoting from it because it so describes my husband. I was going to say, I feel like that's probably your husband to a T. To a T. It's like I've got 200,000 miles on my Subaru, but that's nothing compared to the miles I got on my Chacos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so good. (laughs) And so we just keep quoting from it. Like one of them is... 14ers, I hike 13ers. Less people, same view. And it's like verbatim shit my husband says all the time. Like, 14ers, please. I'll just hike a 13er and there won't be anybody there and I'll get the same view. Oh, my God. That's too funny. (laughs) So, yes, fully aware that we are transplants. Great. Glad your husband has fully embraced the Colorado lifestyle. A hundred percent. But we, this is a great transition, we moved here from North Carolina. Mm. Yes. And this is a great segue to what we're going to talk about today. It caught my eye, this article, um, or this story, I should say, first because it was happening at UNC. And then I got, you know, more information about what was really going on. Um, And wow, is it fucking disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a a fun month in philanthropy, I think we can all say. Uh, So the story Brittany is referencing, um, I'm sure we have all heard now, um, is the story of Nicole Hannah-Jones and her attempts at becoming a tenured professor at UNC uh, that were thwarted and then not. Um, but it didn't fucking matter because she went to Howard anyway. Because she, she's like, peace, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great example, though, of donor power. So we thought we'd dive into this story a little bit, give some more context, and then talk about what it looks like in everyday nonprofits. You know, those of us who don't work in multi-million dollar development departments for universities. Well, I mean, this goes back to a central theme that we've had in this podcast from day one that you know, we've talked about and didn't even know going into it that this was really the undercurrent of everything that we were going to talk about. And that is power and power, power dynamics within philanthropy. Yeah. And when so I was on vacation when the story broke and I was just getting bits and pieces of, of it because I wasn't, um, you know, listening to the news every day and whatnot. <laughs> I wasn't plugged in. And um, I didn't realize at first, that there was a donor mm-hmm. at the center of this. And now that I do, it makes so much more sense to me. Can I say this is just, I don't know if this is a funny, me and Brittany are different people kind of thing, or funny, me and Brittany vacation with children or not with children thing. But when mm. I go on vacation, it's like when I catch up on the news and like where I oh. catch up on all my podcasts. So I'm really plugged in by the time I get back. <laughs> That's so fr- Well, we didn't have service in a lot of places that we yeah, went. That's why you download in advance, duh. I know, I know, I know. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. <laughs> okay, so. You also don't vacation with um, four adults, two kids, and a dog in a camper. No, that sounds like a living nightmare. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was too busy managing people and four-legged dogs and that sort of thing yeah no thank you (laughs) (laughs) me and my podcasts are gonna go rent a cabin in the mountains by ourselves exactly 
Okay, so um, this story, you know, kind of blew up on the national scene in June. Um, but here's the the core tenets of it, the core things to know. Nicole Hannah-Jones um, is a professor. She was actually a professor at UNC and was up for tenure, um, and rightfully so. Not only is she an alum of UNC, she is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She is a MacArthur Fellow, um, big around the 1619 Project, which actually ends up being one of the big points. But she is hella credentialed, so qualified, and was up for a tenured promotion. Should have been like in the bag. In the bag. Totally. Not even up for discussion. No. And that's when. And she's a graduate. Yeah, I, I said that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's when our buddy Walter Hussman got involved. Oh, Walter. Do you know Walty? I've heard of him. <laughs> so, Walter is also an alum of UNC. Um, but most importantly in this story, he's a major donor where he has pledged $25 million to the School of Journalism. He's not just a major donor. The School of Journalism is now has his name on it. Because of that $25 million pledge. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, which is a pledge, by the way. I mean, we've pointed this out a few times. That means he hasn't actually given the money yet. Ugh. Right. Um, so he is a journalist. He is the editor of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. You know, highly regarded publication. Um, but when he got wind of this tenured uh, uh, position for Nicole, he talked to numerous people. Um, one article, which, of course, I'll throw in the show notes, said that he talked to the dean, several administrative positions, including some of their development or advancement staff, two board trustees, um, because he was worried about preserving impartiality and neutrality in journalism. I find it fascinating. It's really interesting to read their arguments. And I read an article where they didn't, they weren't in the same room speaking to each other, but they were told what each person said and kind of hear their counter arguments against it. Um, and I think uh, it just brings up so much, especially now in this year and um, when we're really focusing um as we should be and have been the whole time on the marginalized populations people who haven't had a voice people who have not had representation and all of a sudden there's you know people there saying well here's my voice and here's our representation it's like oh but now that's biased yeah yeah oh you want to talk about the real real around slavery i'm so sorry that is a biased picture of history right yeah um, interestingly, uh, during the 2020 election, there were two major publications in the U.S. that endorsed Trump. Guess what one of them was? <gasps> the Democrat, Arkansas, yada, yada. Yes, you're right. <laughs> the paper has since come out and said, no, 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 that was not an endorsement. We were just giving some points as to why people might want to vote for President Trump. Because they wanted to be unbiased. Right, because they're very unbiased. So anyway, Walter connects with all these people and is basically like, hey, I'm about to give you $25 million, so don't give her a tenured position. UNC pulls it back, then puts it forward again. But in the meantime, Howard is like, come on over here where you're actually valued. Right. 
And the way they do that, which I love this, is they collect major contributions that equal up to $20 million to create an entire fucking department for her. That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, this one guy's got $25 million that he's holding over UNC. But boom, like literally with a snap of the fingers, an HBCU gathered major, major foundations. He got MacArthur, Knight, Ford, like big names to pony up to create an entirely new journalism subsection within Howard just for her and other really incredible journalists to come and join. That's so amazing. Yeah. So here we are. One donor. One fucking person. Mm-hmm. Having the power to talk to all of these other people within the university and sway them to make a decision that goes against precedence, goes against, like, it, it her tenureship, like, went in line mm-hmm. with everybody else's. Yep. And for them to not offer it to her. Uh, this is a call to anybody who gives money to UNC right now. Stop. Pull your fucking donations. Yeah, I mean, I can't. It's ridiculous that um, one person can have that much power. It's ridiculous that an institution. I mean, we go back over and over and over again to like, what are your values? What are mm-hmm. your values as an institution? And then they, of course, come out later and make a statement about how, you know, it went against their values and they're disappointed in themselves and yada, yada. But it's like too little, too late. Yeah, exactly. Way too little too late. Well, and I think this is interesting too. And I want to give another example where it wasn't just one donor. It was a ton of donors. So do you remember, I think it was last summer, University of Texas at Austin and the debacle around their song? No. So um, I think, if I remember correctly... Um, Before every football game and other major events, they play the song, The Eyes of Texas. But the history of it was really in like minstrel shows. So when it had been performed in the early 20th century, it was a lot of students in blackface. It was really derogatory. So even though the lyrics aren't necessarily openly racist, the history of it is. Sure. And so um, Existing students, current students, as of last year, got together and said, like, we we need to stop. Like, the eyes of Texas isn't our thing anymore. And so the university administration was really considering it. And all of these donors got together and put pressure on the school to keep it in. And just a few months ago, they started releasing some of the names. I don't I don't know if it was like a, a FOIA request or how this information got leaked because as we have recently discovered, donors' names are private constitutionally. Yeah, right. Um, But Colt McCoy was one of the big names who came out and said, I will pull donations if they stop singing in the eyes of Texas. So did they? They didn't stop it. Are you serious? The donors won. Uh... But an interesting one, right? Because it wasn't just a single donor. It was a whole group of donors. But that group of donors somehow somehow held more power and influence than their current student population that had banded together in actual advocacy 
to say we don't want this anymore at our events. Right. Well, yeah. And and that goes back to it, right? I mean, I'm reading through this article and I, it ended with a statement by Hannah Jones that said, we are both graduates of that journalism school. We are both people who've been in the newspaper industry for a very long time. And no one person gets to establish the rules of our trade. And that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, why does it come down to one person who happens to be a white male with $25 million who gets to dictate what the standards of their trade are and for that reason deny somebody an opportunity for career advancement Yep, based on it? Exactly. So these big university examples can feel foreign to those who primarily work in small nonprofits. And yet donor influence and power still come into play. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't – I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't think you have this stat ready. But I think nope. it would be interesting to know – I'm – I feel like it's pretty high how many people give to their alma maters. Oh, mm hmm. You know, like university fundraising is pretty big. It's huge. Yeah. Huge. You have got like your churches and you've got your alma maters. And I think that it's important to recognize what your money is being used for and how it's being used. Um, and so, like, your call to people who are giving to UNC, I mean, I know a lot of people who graduated from there and it's a great institution, but this is also your opportunity to say, uh-uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you money if this is how you're going to use it, um, and this is who you're going to give power and influence to. Well, you know, we've talked about doing a whole episode on university endowments, which mm -hmm. I feel like might need to come up soon. Yeah. Um, and I will be totally honest and transparent on this podcast, as I always am. Um, I went to a Big Ten school, massive fundraising arm, University of Michigan, um, and they are sitting on millions and millions and millions of dollars in that endowment that they are not deploying for students, that they are not enabling for scholarships, that they are not utilizing to improve. And so I'm not giving them a fucking cent. Yeah. Have you talked to anybody from their advancement office there? I mean, they call me at least once a year. And do you say that to them? Yeah. Yeah. For a long time it was, I'm not going to give you any money until I pay off my student loans. Mm -hmm. um, and then I paid those off so I couldn't use that anymore. Oh. But now, now I tell them this. And, and I've asked them. Like, they called me last year in the middle of COVID. And I said, well, what, what are the trustees doing to ensure access to students? They couldn't give right. me an answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is big, big, big money. Yeah big money and when you get into university fundraising like that where you're having entire departments and buildings named after you mm -hmm. I mean that is some leverage yeah um actually that reminds me so when I was maybe an undergrad maybe soon after um you know, University of Michigan, we're well known for our football program. We don't need to go into details. Mm -hmm. But we have a very large football stadium. And, you know, they, they jam-pack everybody in. And um, so when I was there, they decided to add a level of suites. And it was going to reduce the number of student tickets pretty significantly. Um, and so students got together, protested. Like, this is our football team, right? Like, we are actually currently attending – 
we we want alumni at our games, but not so that they can get a, these elite boxes that take away seats from students. Yeah, guess who lost? The fucking students. Of course. The suites were put in, and the student section got smaller and smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that in this instance, Howard University came forward and they were like, look, we want you. This is what we're willing to do. And they actually used philanthropy in that instance um, to create a, a really great uh, alternative for her that was way outweighed what UNC could offer anyways. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, I think this is this too where is where I think it can be hard to translate because most of our listeners are thinking, well, we're not calling in twenty million dollars in donations to fix a situation like this. What, what does this look like for us? I mean, I know I can think of times when donors have put pressure on us to do things one way or another. A lot of times it's like event stuff, which who gives a shit. But sometimes it's like integral programming. And, and changes to that. So like just on the individual donor side, we'll get to foundations in a minute because that's a whole nother beast. But I can think about when we had um, we had a new program we were getting online. We went to a longtime donor to get seed funding essentially for it. And um, after running the program for like six, nine months, we needed to make some big changes. You know, we had piloted. I have such a t- hard time with that word. Piloted. There you go. Got yep. it. Got the it. Program. Nailed it. Yep. We learned some things, wanted to change some things, and went to the donor to kind of give that update, and they told us no. And I was like, wait, what <laughs> What dynamic was established where you thought you had a say in how we actually do this? We appreciate mm-hmm. your money, and we're going to do what's in the best interest of our clients in the community. Fuck you. Yeah. Have you ever had donors put pressure on you to change things? Um, well, I know we're about to talk about foundations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I think of first. Um, but yes, I mean, I know, and I think I told this story before. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm going to say it anyways. Um, I worked with a client one time who they were asking for, they needed a certain amount of money to run their programming. They were short. They were talking to uh, a donor about it. And the donor was like, well, I'll give you the money. Like, I have the money, but I want you to do this instead. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, I, you know, my heart is really in this, like, age demographic. And it's yep. like, well, that's not even where we work. And it's like, so if you do this, I'll give you the 10 grand. But otherwise, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it comes with those, like, hyper restrictions. Like, that's where they try to wield power. Right. And that's where I, I think we've talked about this before, too. I think that there was a nonprofit here in town that was doing a capital campaign and they got a big donor and the donor like came in and I don't know all the specifics about it, but I'm being vague anyway. So I'll just continue to be vague. Like they wanted changes to the building and they and it ultimately created a facility that they couldn't sustain. Mm hmm. And so, yeah, that one donor helped them build the building, but it really wasn't what they needed yeah. and or it was more than they needed. Mm-hmm. And then they were left trying to sustain something that they, they couldn't. Yeah. Oh, here's a good example. Um, very similar to that. A client of mine, uh, we're in the midst of a capital campaign. I'm meeting with their campaign committee, uh, which, of course, is made up of a lot of the big donors to the campaign. They're that committed. They sit on the committee. Um, committed committee. Is that why we call them committees? Mm-hmm. 
know. Interesting. So uh, we're talking about the building, you know, going through the final renderings. We're about to start getting um, the footers poured. Really exciting. And this donor, who's probably the second largest donor to the campaign at this point, goes, well, there's no flagpole. And we're like, oh, uh, yeah, weren't planning on a flagpole. And she was like, you need a flagpole. Here, I'll give you an extra 10 grand for the flagpole. And we're like, yeah, okay. But that, like, actually managing a flagpole is management. Let's be clear. Like, making sure you're following all the guidelines of, like, when the flag goes up. Is it lit all the time? When you take it down? When it's at, it's at half-mast? All of those things now the staff have to manage. And also, you had 10K that you would have given and you didn't? And now you're going to give it for a flagpole? For a fucking flagpole? That's so funny. This is such a little aside, but um, my husband was just telling me a story about how he was in charge of taking the flag down from this park that he worked at many, many years ago, and how there was an older gentleman who would always show up around that time and then start yelling at him (laughs) about how he was doing it wrong and how he was, like, disgracing the nation and the flag. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. And had, like, a very, you know, you're right. There is a very specific protocol to managing a flagpole and the flag. And there are clearly people who really care about it being done properly. Okay. (laughs) Funny story. Not a funny context, but a funny story. So uh, my grandfather, who just passed away, was a veteran. And so we had the full... Uh, you know, veterans ceremony at the graveside, the taps, the whole nine. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, they have people in like white gloves that take the flag off the coffin and fold it up in front of you and hand it to the widow or the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While it's all very precise, very, very specific, and it takes for fucking ever. <laughs> like they are going over every crease like four or five times. And my husband's like starting to get the giggles. I'm elbowing him. And of course, everybody else is crying. And it is dead silent. Like taps ended 15 minutes ago, but they're still fucking folding the flag. Yeah. <laughs> and it's they, serious business. Well, and then they get to the end and they did one of them wrong. So they had to like unfold three Stop sections. It. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die here waiting for them to fold the fucking flag. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, all that to say, there's a lot of ceremony around flags. <laughs> there is. And I'm all about ritual, but um, that's really messed up that she was withholding 10 grand that she had for the right. project. Right. Well, let's jump into foundations since you're clearly chomping at the bit for that. <laughs> well, I mean, I have seen over and over and over again foundations who um, what they end up doing is changing your program delivery at times based on their requirements for reporting or their requirements for um mostly for reporting it's like what the information that they need and I've said this before I worked at a place where they wanted a certain amount of information that had to be collected right at the very beginning and like at the at the time that we first meet the clients and are building a relationship and that went against our program delivery. We were very relational and it was about building trust and building trusting relationships and just start off the bat, try to get that kind of information seemed invasive and went against um, our program philosophies. 
And so it's how do you balance that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you push back and say, we really need this money? And it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We really needed it, but we're not willing to compromise, um, you know, the integrity of our programming Mm -hmm. for it. Well, and here's where the power dynamics, I think, can be used for good or evil. Oh. I mean, because all this is about power, right? I mean, whether it's a donor saying, I could bring back my $25 million pledge because you want to hire this person, or here's how you're going to collect information. It's all about that those funders having the power over the organization. So ideally, the reverse of that is that the power is within the organization. You give your, your money, no strings attached, whether you're an individual or a foundation, and you assume, you trust that they know how best to utilize those funds, and they will implement the programs how they see fit. With one caveat that I'm really wrestling with and struggling with how to conceptualize in my socialist left-wing brain. <laughs> Nut job brain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because when I'm, th- when I'm talking in that context, I'm thinking about real community-based organizations. They're grassroots. They're community-led. They know what's happening. Like they're the kinds of nonprofits that are making real change. But there are a lot of other nonprofits. And so you can also see where foundations actually can push for social change for those other organizations, Uh, you know, like talking about the diversity of their boards and Mm -hmm. how they're implementing equity within their organization and how they're ensuring they're not duplicating services. And so that this is where I have a hard time balancing like funders just trust these nonprofits and also funders hold some accountability for nonprofits. Right. Yeah, I hear you. I, I think this really came up because I was reviewing this list of local nonprofits. You know, again, for our listeners, we're in Boulder County. We have literally thousands of nonprofit organizations in this county. And I was struck by how ridiculous some of them were. Like how goddamn niche. Like <laughs> this is a total for instance, but there was something similar enough to this. The organization for the rescue of blue-eyed cats. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Don't don't we have some other groups doing that? Right. <laughs> and then I think about some of the organizations that are just kind of stuck in old ways, and they've got white dominant boards and white dominant staff that are continuing to perpetuate oppressive systems, and so. Oh, here's where I struggle with the power. I know, because what if you had a donor that came in and said, well, I want to see the diversity of your board. And let's talk about what, you know, you came out with the statement a year ago. I got your email talking Mm -hmm. about how you were going to be including, you know, inclusive practices, implementing inclusive practices. Like, show me, you know, what you've done. And then I will give to your organization. Okay, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Because what you're talking about there is the general transparency all nonprofits should have, which is what allows donors to decide whether or not to give. Those donors aren't saying, I'm going to hold this money over you until you fix these things, right? Right. So having knowledgeable donors who give to your organization because – they feel like you're running an organization aligned with their values. That's, that piece is fine. 
it's when it's like my money is contingent upon you changing something or making a different decision. That's the power dynamic that gets nasty. Yeah. But we, so again, here we are. Let's look at our own role in this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just talk for myself. That's how I was trained as a development director. Yeah. I, donor-centric, talk to your donor, find out what they care about, then like really try to lead them to give a gift that is in that one specific area and, you know, connect those dots for them and make it feel like they are doing something specific for your organization so they can feel fulfilled. And maybe it's outlining, it's like how we, you know, uh, quantify every dollar amount. You know, mm-hmm. your $25 pays for this. Your $50 pays for this. Like, we do that. I do that. Exactly. We have set I'm, up this dynamic. We have set up this dynamic. We are we are enabling it. Mm-hmm. So how do we train the other way around? <laughs> exactly. I Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, I can't remember what you said, but this triggered this uh, thought in my head. Um, there was this really great article and I'll find it and drop it in the show notes um, that my team and I just read about the the burden on consultants to shift that. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we could be consultants and just say, yeah, here's how you play the game the best. Right. Here's how you win that grant application. Here's how you get those donors in the door. But is that really the community change that we're going for is that really holding ourselves accountable as consultants for being part of those systems um so anyway like i feel like not only do fundraisers have a responsibility to shift that consultants have a responsibility to shift that certainly funders do oh my god funders do um (laughs) and and it it all is this like interplaying system and what we're saying is not generally accepted by all maybe even most right now no no and even as a dd if you're listening to this and you're like yeah i get it i'm tired of pandering to my donors too and really trying to you know pitch like a a one niche thing that they will give to um but my ceo my ed that's all they do you know like it really has to be an organizational shift of like, we're no longer going to be trying to meet individual needs. Yeah. We are going to talk to individuals about how they can help us meet our needs. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that conversation at UNC? Right. That power that he has didn't just happen overnight. Mm-mm. I mean, that's been cultivated over a long-standing relationship that that individual has had with that institution. Well, and it's certainly like a cultural dynamic. Uh, the article said he talked to multiple people within UNC administration and the, the board of trustees. And it sounds like nobody slapped him back to say, get in your lane. Right. That is outside of your purview as a donor. Like, you don't have a, a voice at this table. Mm-hmm. And really, I think whether it is big universities or teeny tiny local nonprofits, until we shift that dynamic with donors, 
organizations will continue to be placed in those positions of having to make uncomfortable decisions, unpopular decisions, um, and have to grapple with the loss of funds to promote their values. Yeah, exactly. I've started having that conversation with donors, and I'll tell you, they've been uh, very receptive. Mm -hmm. Um, To the point that I even had a donor who came and said, Brittany, I'd like to give you X, you know, your organization X amount of money. I really want to help fund blah, blah, blah. Now, it's really unrestricted. (laughs) So you use it where you need to use it. But, you know, it's like he couldn't quite go all the way to say, here's an unrestricted gift of X amount of money. But he put in this, you know, at least a disclaimer at the end of like, you know, it's really unrestricted. But then it's hard even within the organization to say like, no, this is really an an unrestricted gift. Mm -hmm. Like it might have been inspired because of this program and they want to support this program. But they are supporting it by giving us an unrestricted gift that we can use where we need it most because they recognize that by us being able to fill in the gaps in maybe some of the other places, that allows us to continue and grow the program that they're really passionate about. That right there so is how such can we talk- perfect framing. I love that. Yeah, like how do we talk more holistically about supporting our organizations rather than just this one fragment piece of it Mm, yeah exactly there it is there it is it's that simple yeah (laughs) if only the other the one other point i want to make on this is as i was thinking about the kinds of people who utilize their donor powers in these ways i was like trying to get into the psyche like what would make somebody do this? Which is so funny because like in my mind, it's one of the most evil things somebody can do. (laughs) I probably need to watch more like superhero movies or something. Yeah, but I mean, it's just like we talked about, it all feeds into, remember when we were talking about these hospitals that were allowing high level donors to jump the COVID shot line? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like we enable it, you right. know, hey, we're going to give you this VIP access. We're going to give you, you know, this experience that nobody else gets. We're going to treat you um, so different than anybody else because of this. And now they can expect that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and one of the conclusions I came to is what underlies all of that is just like a level of hubris. Like, I think I know how your organization would run better. I think I know how you can provide journalism education better. I think I know how your local shelter can be better. And so that's why me as a donor or as a funder, I can put in either restrictions to my gift or try to leverage my power for you to make changes. And that is the piece that I think I will never connect with. Right, absolutely, because in the instance of this at UNC, it was his personal philosophy that Mm -hmm. he had, that he personally had, not because he felt like, uh, because she didn't have the credentials, right? It was that she doesn't agree or doesn't abide by my personal philosophy when it comes to journalism. Right. And so because of that, I feel like she doesn't deserve this chance and then they all said, that's right, your opinion means more than 
hers or or ours ours right yeah yeah that's horrible (sighs) and on next week's episode we'll talk about billionaires going to space (laughs) (laughs) so really bring it all down well i i mean we always say this but i do i would love to hear from you i'd love to we know, come on, if you've been in this sector even for a hot minute, I'm sure you've experienced it. Um, some funder, some donor who has exercised their power in a way that, um, you know, is not beneficial to the organization and put you in a tough spot of having to decide what you're going to do for fear of maybe losing said donor. Um, and maybe that donor's a board member, which then makes it even more complicated. So please let us know, um, you know, what have what positions have you been put in and, and what decisions did you make? Is based this on the it? opposite of us telling people what to do with their own damn fucking money? In what way? Because we're telling them what organizations shouldn't have to do with their own fucking money? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> We're just flipping it. We're just flipping, flipping that it. Yeah. Keeping you on your toes. <laughs> so email us, uh, hate mail or otherwise, nonprofitreframe <laughs> at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at nonprofitreframe. And please uh, support your local nonprofits. Give and give generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.